What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Run Your Mouth Podcast, part two with Monica Perez. And uh, hopefully the CIA doesn't shut us down this time. <laughs> hopefully. You would, you would think being on the move and not even being in your home studio would, uh, you know, get you a little leeway, but they, they spotted you right away. <laughs> I can't, I've gotten struck before it's even the broadcast is finished. I've been taken down before it's fully <laughs> uploaded. Well, I always get a kick out of, cause sometimes I've done, uh, my show or Dave's show from hotels. And I just wonder what the hell people in the hallway are thinking. Yes. I used to do my, uh, on location at a studio in LA every once in a while and people would literally like look at me like I, are you saying that on the radio i did ultimately get fired so i guess they were right and i was wrong yeah but sometimes you just get that person literally walking down the hallway and just going wait what a second <laughs> what was that exactly that's so great all right so before we get into part two of creative person why don't we plug so you've got your own show uh deep dives and what are some recent things you've covered over there so a few things I've done, I did a recent one on perfect storms, like every single crisis that really doesn't make sense. And has happened before, it never happened before. They're like, oh, like 10 different things happened all at once. It was a perfect storm. And I think they're just like mini false flags or bad policies. Another thing is I totally cracked the code on the baby formula shortage, completely Ooh. manufactured by the FDA. There was nothing to it at all. And they caused all that pain and suffering. That was another deep dive I did. So I take did one topic and I just do it for like 20 minutes or half an hour. Real, we'll we'll cover that quickly. Yeah. Do you think that was stupidity on their part that they shut down one of the largest suppliers and you got all these monopolies? So, it, or they purposely wanted a shortage? Absolutely, no doubt in my mind. The the wow. things they had to do to get a shortage, like there was no connection at all between the bacteria that made the baby sick and the plant where the all that formula was made. Twenty percent of all the formula is made in that one plant. So if you have four sick babies. Chances are, if you had 16 sick babies, a quarter of them or whatever would be from that plant, have eaten that formula, had nothing to do with the formula. It's totally proven it wasn't. Not only did they shut down the plant, but they recalled all the formula that was on the shelves. And then when the company was about to open up again, the FDA went to the DOJ and asked them for permission to basically padlock the factory, just wouldn't let it happen. And then uh, as soon as that got passed, there was just this massive flood that closed the factory again. And I saw course, that I one. Think, I believe in weather control, so <laughs> I think they did that on purpose. I thought it was a, I don't know why I thought it was a fire, but I also, when I saw There's that- a lot had, of fires. Not at that one, though. Oh, I saw that one as being incredibly shady. Uh, so specifically on the uh, food supplies, wh wh why? why? Why do you think that they were going after? Is uh, Nancy Pelosi running out of stem cells, needs more dead babies? <laughs> Well, there was one thing that I thought was a tell that was when this really broke was the week of Davos. So all the World Economic Forum people were there. And one of the articles I was reading about it, because when you ever see the wheel, it's like Davos has this wheel and any topic that you press, it'll go into the middle and then the wheel will be all these other things. So one of those topics is anti-globalism. And it talks about, you know, all the crazy MAGA people who don't really want global corporations running the world, whatever. And it said that these anti-globalists are causing so much trouble that they will themselves make the best argument for globalism and used as an example, the baby formula shortage, America could not have survived without international baby formula supplies through that Defense Production Act. But it's ridiculous because the whole reason that there's limitations is all these regulatory barriers to entry. There would be there would have been a million of them, but they just have a lot of basically arbitrary or unnecessary regulatory rules. So to create those oligopolies and and that's why they had to have an emergency like to get those massive supplies from overseas. But they didn't even have to. They had to manufacture the crisis just to even to make that argument. But Davos was citing that as an example of why globalism is essential. I have a globalism question for you because I was going to bring this up later in the show, but it's been kind of top of mind for me is uh, I mean, I'm I'm pretty hardcore libertarian, pretty hard uh, libertarian, pretty hardcore free trade all the time. Uh, but I wonder like if 60 years ago we tried, we decided not to trade with China, if that, like, I don't really even know what the harmful effects would have been. I don't know how many goods and services we bring in from them and how cheap it would be, but there's some aspect of being like forward looking where I just see, like, I could see them almost completely controlling our government and bringing over all of the things that they have over there, which are so not free. There's some weird aspect to me of like, 
even trading with governments that have people like in concentration camps, you know, but I'll hand it back to yeah. you. I, I like, I wonder no, about that one. That's amazing that you should mention that. I'm, I'm sure you've never heard me talk about this, but I have talked about it when I was growing up, my parents who were hardcore, like cold warrior, red scare people, my like single car garage was full of dried food. I just remember like the Sam Andy food, which eventually we had to eat. My father would have a shoot us gun, shooting guns in the, the Sam Andy food. Good. Cause I got all sorts of oh random God. crap in my closet right now. And I don't know what degrees of un, <laughs> edible it is i don't know if it's even in business anymore but i'm telling you that we were eating those powdered mashed potatoes for like 30 years <laughs> but and uh so so my parents were horrified that nixon opened up trade with china and in my house we weren't allowed to buy anything that was made in china and my father who had nine kids would spend saturday nights with his friends going through store retail stores shoe stores particularly and putting cards he used to call them card parties he would put little cards that said this was made by slave labor in china please don't buy into all the shoes now like 80 or 90 percent of all the shoes in this country are made in china but here's the thing so some people will say don't the government doesn't have business to embargo or whatever like not trade on a political basis they're free traders like my my like ron paul i think is a free trader when it comes to cuba and stuff but the problem was they gave China most favored nation trading status, which everyone doesn't have. So Vietnam didn't have it or North Korea doesn't have it. So sometimes I feel like they they actually lent a hand to China. And their argument was if we co-opt them, they won't want to take us over. They'll be part of the system. But in my opinion, if they had left the entire system free and really have no trade barriers or anything like that, we would have so dominated. As a matter of fact, I think there's a Rockefeller quote that says, in order to merge East and West and have a world government, you've got to slow the West way, way down and prop the East up. And I think they slowed the West down with a lot of regulatory things, and then they propped the East up with that kind of stuff. But if we hadn't had that, we would have pulled so far away from in terms of prosperity that the rest of the world just would have followed and we would have a free world. So, so it's not the trading that we've done with China, it's the way that we've created regulations that inhibited it ourselves that basically gave them an unfair advantage. And kept us from trading with other countries. They had an advantage of trading with other countries. I think, I don't know the backstory of Walmart, right. but I think the whole thing was that he got this backdoor deal to use their manufacturing. And so it's not like, oh, he was a genius and he figured this out. It's like, well, he got stuff for half the price of anybody else because they subsidize labor by having slavery or whatever. We subsidize infrastructure. I got frozen shrimp once from China. Frozen shrimp. I was like, you kept this frozen for like 10,000 miles or 15,000? And that was cheaper than getting it from Louisiana? where they're just fucking bugs crawling everywhere. Like right. that's obviously uh, we are subsidizing infrastructure and somehow like a, you know, sugar price floor or whatever. Like we, we put a lot of things in place that you cannot see that res have these outcomes. And like the Russian grain situation is one of those examples. There's no sanctions, no embargoes on grain, but there's embargoes on shipping, on insuring, on getting ships into port that effectively make it look like Russia's making a decision not to send grain, but they put all those other factors into place that, that determine the outcome. Uh, all right. Last China question. And then we'll get back on topic here. There was an article this past week in the wall street journal about, uh, I guess they had evidence of uh, the CCP trying to infiltrate the federal reserve. Now I remember, and this is just total conjecture. My dad was telling me he once met a guy who is like a, uh, high-ranking official in the U.S. military. And this guy said to him, I'm going to keep it super vague. This guy said to him that in his opinion, every, I mean, this is a crazy opinion, but every single student that is China Chinese in America paying full tuition is actually CCP funded and they're probably a spy. And that essentially they try and get these kids into, you know, our best colleges and infiltrate them into just being Americans that, you know, at some point they can be in some situation to steal technology. Now, that seems a little too far-fetched to say every single one of them. The idea that some of them, I mean, that sounds reasonable to me. But then four years later, I see this Federal Reserve thing and I was like, oh, this does look a little bit shady. So th that's one that I haven't looked into all that much, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. I, I would say like the way the, the idea of every single student, I was just, it just reminds me, I was just reading a book about the CIA and the Vatican and the mafia, Gladio, Gladio, like I have four books on it as a matter of fact, 
going on six. But I, what I, what one just like throwaway comment in there was the reason the Vatican was such a threat to the communists and the communists killed a lot of priests and stuff was that the priests report to their prelates or whatever they're called. And then they report to the Vatican. Like there's a, there's upward reporting. I've actually, some of the priests, bishops, whatever people who come and talk at my church, they there's like, Oh, that guy was at, has stationed at the Vatican for a while. Or I know somebody at the Vatican, if you go to the Vatican, he'll give you a tour. So there actually is like an amazing amount of communication back and forth. And I'm thinking, so the way the communists thought about it was every priest is a spy. But the priests weren't thinking they were spies. The priests were like, I'm a Catholic priest. My loyalty is to the church. I report. That's what I do. I take a vow of like obedience. I just tell them whatever I try to administer. In their minds, they're not spies at all. So I can imagine that if you had a network of students that you who you were paying for and your culture, your system, whatever, was that they completely fully expect that all of their electronic devices are completely uploaded into your central system. Anything that you stumble upon, you wouldn't even know how to crack the code on the technology, but I guess it's possible that little details that you get from your tech classes or whatever could help kind of reverse engineer. And maybe it's just like Wikipedia where, where, you know, the, whatever it is, like the, the, the high X theory of information, just every little piece will eventually give you the total answer. So I could see that. I also think that as far as China, like actually bribing people in the fed, I think like Israel had people in Caltech and, uh, it was a scandal. And I thought, well, there were people in Caltech cooperating and there were people in Caltech who were shocked by this. I think similarly, there's people in the CIA, the FBI, who know exactly what the CIA is all about. It's about operations. It's not about intelligence. And But there are plenty of like rank and file who go in there like true blue believers. And so probably in the Fed or anybody who goes over to China, there, there have to be, I, I'm figuring there are factions of people who are open to that, don't care, are actually there to promote China. B Biden, for example, has a lot of interest in China. He used to, and I think he still does, to where I think Peter Schweitzer estimated it to be over a billion dollars. Like that's what the real stuff, Biden's the most corrupt president I can even imagine um, from that point of view, or it's most lucrative for him. So, so like Biden's goal is to help China, right? I mean, I'm not accusing him of that. I'm just saying if he's got a billion dollars in state funded financial stuff, it's just in his interest to like make sure that China gets what they want. But there's plenty of people in the Fed or the FBI, or the CIA who think of China as the enemy. So probably some people plug in, maybe they make the offer to people they've pre-screened and think they're going to say yes and isn't going to get the whistle blown. But I do think and I'm usually like highly conspiratorial, but I do think that there are some factions and some people would be shocked or caught or have to cover their asses by actually conducting, conducting an investigation when somebody leaks it, which I think is what happened here. Um, but yeah, I mean, they probably cast a broad net. They do it subtly. Some people bite, some people don't. Um, but I doubt every single person in the Fed is in the pocket of China. Right, but it, it would be reasonable to you that they have infiltrated a lot of tech and government via even just sending students here or integrating people into society? I would think so. And I think it would be in full with the full knowledge of some factions of the U.S. government who think right. like globalists. And okay. they think that China is the next leader. The way the U.K. passed off global leadership to the U.S. in the 30s, I feel like we are doing that actively now to China. I mean, China, China CDC was sitting shoulder to shoulder with the U.S. CDC at Event 201, which planned COVID. So China's like the China Wuhan virus. It's like, well, they were completely in on this entire plot. So they obviously this is not, a you know, a battle, a war, an information war. Even they're cooperating with that narrative for some reason. I think it's because they are going to land on top like their vaccines, I don't think, are prophylactic gene therapy. So like, I, I guess the idea is if you saw the CIA, CIA as being its own corporation, and they're they're almost like a parasite looking to jump host where they look at the U.S. and they're like, all right, we kind of ran this one. China's going to be in charge. And so just it, as its own unit, the parasites are kind of looking to, you know, the, the, like it's like if you're uh, an advisor to the king and you see that some other kingships on the rise, you go, oh, I better go work with at that company. Right. That's actually a good way to put it, because you have courtiers who are involved with the king and maybe there's a power behind the throne there. I think there always is. I think they've fully differentiated the face job from the power. 
And for even just for security reasons, like this guy gets his head blown off, we still have the control mechanism in place. But there's a courtier, and then you have all the bureaucrats and everything, all the like true believers, all the obsequious, you know, uh, like bow and scrape types who just think they're serving king and country. But the courtier is serving the power behind the throne. The king, whether he believes in the country or not, maybe isn't the guy in charge. But I really feel like there's extreme compartmentalization in that triangle of hierarchy. So the people on the very top are totally on board with the power structure that's completely global. And then as it descends to where like, you know, you probably know someone, I know somebody who thinks their uncle's in the CIA. And that guy's like a hardcore patriot. Like he'll get fucking pissed if you tell him, Trump's fake, you know, like he'll get pissed. You can see his face get red. And uh, like he's he believes it, you know, he absolutely believes it. And I think he probably does work for the CIA. I don't know. But so I think that anybody you would ever have contact with is probably a true believer. All right. And then one more question on the China thing, because you're, you're dropping truth nuggets here. I got to pick them up. Uh, Biden, uh, I've always it, it seemed likely to me that maybe Biden has some sort of a cut from China or maybe he's funneling his money through Ukraine. And just to give the big picture here, like if you're to, if you're to bribe a president, right? Like, and he's going to give you a more favorable policy on a trillion dollar trade deal, passing that guy a hundred million or even a billion dollars, it's literally nothing. And what we're talking about is him just making the smallest decision of, hey, this company can trade with the US or they can do it without these tariffs. Like we're talking about like you don't even need to do that terrible of a bribe. You know what I mean? It's like not like it's not like Biden needs to go throw American kids into ovens or go cause a war. It's like, you know, what I mean, it's really not that big of a deal. It's like, oh, you're going to send me a billion dollars. And I just have to say that John Deere can't sell its factor, its tractors at regular price over there type thing. I think it's more, it seems to me on the surface of the mechanism of how Biden does the self-serving thing is more like innocuous, like what you're saying regarding China. The stuff with Ukraine, which would be super complicated to get into, which I'm happy to do, but this thing with Ukraine is a little worse. It's they, they actually cost the country a lot. They caused a war. The U.S. caused a war by doing a coup in 2014. And we can get into that if you want, but the China thing is much simpler. China, um, Biden, Hunter Biden is just a face job for Joe and, and his brother, Joe's brother, Jim, they're, they're real scum. They were in bed with Alan Stanford. I think his name was, who is second only to Bernie Madoff with the biggest fraud in history. He's got like 110 years in prison right now. And those guys did, um, I think it was called like paradigm, uh, financial or whatever, something like that. So those guys, the Bidens outside of Joe, they, they do his bidding and trade on his name, and I'm sure kick him back most of it, they're super corrupt. Now, Hunter, similarly for the China stuff and Ukraine stuff, actually was a connected situation. Hunter is the guy who sits on the board of Burisma, but he also is a partner in Rosemont Seneca, and there are four partners there of note, which is Chris Hines, John Kerry's stepson, when John Kerry was Secretary of State and Biden was VP in Ukraine. So that was important, but that's when that those guys were sitting on the board. Um, it was it was James Bulger III, Whitey Bulger's nephew and the oh, son wild. of the state senator, yeah, of the other Bulger. Then it was Hunter Biden and this guy, Devin Archer, who was actually convicted of fraud, trading on the Biden's name, defrauding American Indians. And his conviction was overturned by the wife of the second in command of the Mueller investigation. So there is some faction. So the Mueller investigation was Mueller. And then his number two was the husband of Ronnie Abrams, who was the judge who accepted the convictions of Devin Archer's three partners, but overturned his. Now, I think the Supreme Court reinstated it, something like that later. But Devin Archer, obviously fraud, 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 fraud. These guys are bad. Then, uh, so that company also had an investment or like a, a sister of that company that Hunter Biden was involved in, had an investment in a big financial com- uh, investment thing in China. So that investment thing was like, basically China State Bank owned. And from what I understand, and I think this was a lot of this was in Schweitzer's book also, he he got like Biden, Hunter Biden got something like 10% of that company with a very small contribution, like $600,000, which he never gave. And then he sat on the board and it ends up that that interest could be worth a billion dollars. That's the one that could be worth a billion dollars. So publicly, Hunter Biden said, I'm stepping down from the board. And I was like, okay, but are you giving up your interest? 
And I never read that he did. So I was like, okay, so you're just stopping showing up from work and you're still, so, but not that exact company, but a similar investment that they were looking at and a big Chinese investment company was the subject of this guy. I think his name is Tony Bobolinsky. He was on Tucker Carlson. He just whistle blew a lot of stuff, just like data dumped a lot of stuff. Well, one little email in there that I just found absolutely fascinating was an email from Tony to the Chinese guys. And I don't think the partnership ever went through, but it said, here's a list of people we know, our connections, our loyal partners, something like that. Um, and what, what uh, their in infrastructure uh, profile is. And so it was basically a promise to Chinese companies that they would broker deals of Chinese companies with, and it was a list of politicians like Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Gavin Newsom, Andrew Cuomo. And it had like numbers that says controls $4 billion worth of infrastructure, controls whatever. So that's what I think. It's not, yes, they don't have to kill your babies. And I think they did do that for to Ukraine. They burned people alive and stuff, our henchmen over there. But with the China thing, I think, you know, and it, and it could be that the Chinese work was fine. It could be just like, a, you know, they were equally competitive with the other guys and they they just got the bid because they knew Biden. So I don't think it's as bad. I, I don't know if it's because that came out or what, that they didn't actually go through with that plan. But that's what I think it works for China. And there's another thing about China. They don't, from what I understand, I've read a lot and talked to people about this. They don't fully understand the, the possibility that something isn't corrupt. So if you, so just by introducing them to a high ranking person, so just like by flying in on Air Force Two, like Hunter Biden did for the meeting that he arranged one of these Chinese investments, just by doing that, they feel like, like, they have an inside track on a deal. So if they, even if they won fair and square, 75% of the deals, cause they're great and lost 25%, they'd be like, oh, wow, we really got some kind of advantage working with these guys. Even if they didn't, even if you had no power, you could do it. I always thought Scaramucci, right. Scaramucci did that. He sold, as soon as he got into the white house, he sold his company, which kind of sucked for $200 million. And then he got fired. I was like, man, I don't know how he brokered that deal, but he must. Uh, I wonder how much he kicked back Trump or what, you know, pictures he has. Well, I said that actually in support of Hunter. I don't support Hunter. I made right one now. argument in support, which was there is a possibility of these out there with good salesmanship, basically brokering as if he's got an inside track that he doesn't have. Uh, and I, I actually don't think that's what he did. But speaking to your point, if you live in China, I've done like very limited marketing and i've said to people this is not the nicest way to put it you always want to create value but sometimes in internally in the sales office you put things in the worst possible terms and i've said that when you speak to people abroad they know nothing about the u.s culture which means you're more of an expert to them and i know that to be true if you're on a marketing call with someone from europe and they're trying to market their product here you can tell them i would never do this but you can literally tell them hey i was in Times square yesterday and here's the feeling i'm getting they don't know. They go, oh, wow, this guy knows everything. So I could see that from Chinese officials that everything there works off bribes. So they would just assume that it's the same over here. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's uh, delve into Ukraine a little bit because you did mention it. Okay. And I sure. do not, broad strokes, I do not understand the history of what went on there. And uh, I, I do know that this might be one of the biggest blunders we've ever seen, probably in terms of foreign policy. Uh with, in my opinion, Biden essentially pushing Putin into this war. I think it was yeah, very do. dumb. Uh, there is a variable. Why don't we start with this? There is a variable, though, with the Nord Stream 2, uh, which it would appear, and I mostly say this because of Ted Cruz's remarks, that um, maybe other oil industries really didn't want that operation to go live. Uh, was that an aspect to this, like specifically in yes, trying to block so. Nord Stream? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I do think so. I think that... Um, it, it's so complicated now. I mean, just so like the food thing, I never realized they used to call Ukraine the breadbasket of that region. And, um, I just never realized how important that was going to be. And, you know, the new world as when energy was always the most important. So I always thought of it as the gas pipeline thing was the most important thing about Ukraine and Russia in the first place, not just Nord Stream 2 going to the rest of the world, but uh, going to Germany and other parts of Europe, I guess, but, uh, that, that just the gas deal that, so in 2013, Yanukovych, who was the democratically elected president of Ukraine, 
the EU tried to offer him some deal, like some gas deal, bonds, trading, all this kind of crap, which was not good. Like it was high interest rates, low prices. It was just bad for him. I don't know if they were trying to bribe him or threaten him or what. He was highly corrupt. But he went to Russia and he made a good deal with Russia, a deal he couldn't refuse based on the terms. So I always think if you're the little guy and the big guy is totally corrupt, all you have to do is insist on fair treatment and that's in your favor. So you can look like the good guy. So maybe Russia and Putin are bad, but they can always just argue the moral point of view because they're being treated immorally. So uh, he cut this deal and then that's when he had to go. And Victoria Nuland, who was the assistant secretary of state at the time, Jeffrey Pyatt, who I think was the ambassador to Ukraine, what a betrayal. They literally are caught on tape, no question about it, cannot deny it, plotting the coup to take Yanukovych out and to install three people, Yatsenyuk, Klitschko, and... Tani Book, who was a Nazi, as the controlling um, triumvirate of Ukraine that would report, talk to each other four times a week. Klitschko is still the mayor of, of Kiev. So what, 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 this was a trade deal between Ukraine and Russia that... Uh... Yes, it was. Yes. And it replaced something they needed. They're always like sucking wind. So they needed right. bonds. They needed bonds. And I think I have to, I'm pretty sure gas pipelines go just straight across Russia through Ukraine. I could be wrong. I never really looked at a map of that. Um, but I believe that's how it works. And I always thought Syria had the same thing. Like that's how gas gets from the Middle East up to Europe and from Russia. Now, the, the Klitschko brother ones is so weird because yes. I feel like if I was casting a movie, the right. fact that you've got these two gorgeous looking heavyweight yeah. champions yeah. that are now the political party over there. It like, it would seem like the, the exact, He's the yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it almost feels like the exact people you would need to suck me in and just root for them for no reason. Other than that. I've yeah. seen them on American television and not just charming, but also a bit threatening. Right now, it was actually weird to me at first because I thought the Klitschko's were Russians. I like, I, I remember when they were fighting, I actually thought that they were, I guess because you but just Putin kind of would say they are right. Yeah, I guess that's true. All right. <laughs> so back to uh, so who was the so, so Victoria yeah. Newland? Are you familiar with the coup? Do you understand why you? Well, I remember. I just remember during the Obama administration when that went down. But no, I know nothing about the particulars of it. Well, OK, so Victoria Newland, Vicky the Noodle, I call her. She was just in Sri Lanka. <laughs> hey, yeah, her father's right? name was Noodleman. Like, she's just like her mob name, Vicky the Noodle. OK, so she and it's funny because she's not fucking noodle. She's a whip. <laughs> you <right>. know, <laughs> um, so she was in Sri Lanka three weeks before the protest started, by the way. But okay. so she she that's her thing. I think she creates problems and she tells you how. So she went and she plotted this coup that got rid of the democratically elected governor, uh, president of Ukraine, framed him for murder by killing a bunch of protesters. Snipers killed cops and protesters with the same bullets. Right. And that's all on hidden audio, um, or at least enough that it's crystal clear what happened. And uh, after that, they wanted to put in this other this other government that was going to be absolutely westward looking and completely do whatever you EU wanted. But the problem was they went too far. So they immediately passed these laws where the Russian language would be banned. And in the eastern provinces, Russian is their language and Crimea. Russian is their language. Crimea is like San Diego. It's just a, a naval port. And it's Russian naval ports. So all of those places, they don't, they couldn't even elect, they couldn't even follow the political discourse because they weren't allowed to use Russian in an official capacity. So they said they wanted they wanted to change that. They brokered deals to try to change it. They um, for a very long time they did not want to break away. They did not want to be annexed to Russia. Russia didn't want them. But in order to subdue them, they the Ukraine the fake Ukrainian government that we installed was just trying to send regular Ukrainian army to go in there and just like shoot people who were resisting. And they couldn't get the regular Ukrainians to do it. So in May 2014, Tani Book, Vicky's Nazi, went in and started the Azov Battalion to in order to get like people who were extremely nationalistic to say, OK, these people aren't even Ukrainian. Right. So we can kill them because this is like our land and they are invaders. And that's how come like the real hardcore people who are pushing east even now are these neo-Nazis, the Azov Battalion. And um, because of the carnage, at least 14000 people were killed there. I think that's a gross underestimate, really brutally. They were begging Russia to come in, begging, begging, begging. And Putin's like, I'm not getting sucked in. I'm not getting sucked in. I'll give you weapons, but I'm not getting sucked in. Really, truly great people were killed. 
in that effort. And then in the end, they said the only way we're getting sucked in is if you if Ukraine joins NATO. And all we did was just the entire time, like Ukraine's joining NATO, Ukraine's joining NATO, la, 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 la. And uh, it was very clear it was a provocation. And actually, I read a Rand Corporation document recently that said it was from 2019, like, should we go forward and provoke Russia to take action in Ukraine? It would be great because it would totally distract them and get them mired in something that's really not something they want to do. It's not their strength. They don't really feel like taking over territories. But we don't want them to pay attention to the New Silk Road or China or any of that. We really need to deter them. They may turn around and start doing the same thing in our backyard. So you got to watch out what goes on in Venezuela, what's going to go on in Cuba and stuff. Got to watch out for that. It's a risk. But, you know, let's see how it goes. Maybe we can try to bribe the Belarusian guy and see if he'll come to our side. That would really screw Russia. And they did try to do that. And if he doesn't, then we can we can go hardcore on him, which they did. So we took over Ukraine. We installed Zelensky. Zelensky was an actor. I'm sure you know that. He was a comedian who had a show. And his boss, Kolomoisky, who... And Zelensky went to law school. He was a media kind of mogul partner in his own right, more or less, with this guy, Kolomoisky, who literally had a tank full of sharks in his office. Kolomoisky... What? Real villain shit. Yeah, real villains. Like, I'm sure, I mean, he would kill people, like, absolutely no question about it, and make it clear that he was killing people for the street, real mobster type stuff. He was the ultimate owner of Burisma, by the way. So Ooh. he's in bed with, you know, it's only like one or two degrees of separation from Hunter Biden and that whole thing. And like the IMF loans, this is where it got complicated. I said the China thing's more simple, but this is more complicated, where Kerry and Biden brought a billion dollars of IMF loans in there think that's what he was talking about. And he was like, get rid of the prosecutor. You don't get those loan guarantees. The loans went went were given to Ukrainian companies under certain circumstances. Well, Kolomoisky went in, took the loans, offshored them, which was totally not allowed, will never pay them back. The bank that he used to process that, Privat Bank, went under, was nationalized by Poroshenko, who should have been his guy, but he was just like, I can't do this. It's going to bankrupt the whole country. I have to take this over. So he did. And that's when Poroshenko had to go and they had to put Zelensky in. And then Kolomoisky turned around and says, I'm suing the government of Ukraine for $3 billion for nationalizing my bank, which was totally solvent, even though they said it wasn't. But my point is that he was getting that IMF money. That's where your, your kind of bribery comes in. And how do they get the payola? Not because Hunter Biden gets $50,000 a year or even a month, but because he's in Rosemont Seneca and who knows how much they're profiting or whatever little side company he has that is profiting from one of these companies. Uh, a Kolomoisky company, or maybe it's a front operation. I don't know how they're getting paid off, but it's very clear that there is a lot of corruption in, in that little world. And Zelensky, people say, not, not elected democratically, even if you discount that the East probably didn't vote at all in that election. And uh, he kills journalists, kills opposite. He made the opposition party illegal over there right now as we're speaking. So there is, I mean, I had one guy on, um, Jeremy Kuzmar, a really good uh, writer for Covert Action Magazine, um, saying that there was basically an Operation Phoenix, which I'm not, I wasn't even really familiar with this until recently in Vietnam, where they would go in and anyone who opposed the state was considered Viet Cong and just murdered. And he said that it's, quite possible it's rising to that level in Ukraine with the help of the CIA. So that is a real corrupt, real corrupt. So I think they provoked it. I think they provoked the war uh, intentionally and it looks like a morass, but if you are just one corrupt person like Biden, I don't know why at 78, he really still has to play the game and why he would put himself out, out there for Hunter. I don't know, but it seems to me that uh, it's really more for them and their cronies than any bigger picture. I mean, they're, they're, I'm sure there's lots of big picture. I'm not saying that, but it just seems to me it's enough to say that they're just so corrupt that that's they're willing to sacrifice an entire country for it. But what is pushing, I guess, Putin into the war with Ukraine help them? Like, if you're just trying to run money through the region, so essentially right. you want to be able to give them, well, I guess they've been able to increase their military spending. So if they're just pocketing the money that's oh, going yes, there. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Yes. they. So I think they wanted to basically have an excuse to put a ton of military, of weaponry and stuff in Ukraine. So I right. feel like Western Ukraine is now... Um, 
will easily convert into a NATO base. I think Poland is literally a NATO base now. You know, like right. they just like put all that stuff up there. And friggin', oh my gosh, Brzezinski's son is the ambassador to Poland from the US. This is a big new Brzezinski who basically plotted geopolitics 50 years into the future. Right. His daughter is Mika, who's like the media talking head, and his, his son is the ambassador there in Poland. But yes, yeah, so I think that's right. I think that this gave them a way to get a lot of money and weapons on the ground in Ukraine. And uh, and they'll probably give Putin the East, but then that's a very much smaller buffer for Putin than the entire, like, and if they're sucking in like Finland and Sweden, that's just crazy. All right. Now on on this, and then we're going to, we're, we're flipping the order of the episode because we'll close on the created yeah, sure, uh, persons. Um, it, it seems to me, well, the two biggest risks of what's going on in Ukraine is one, we didn't have China's support. We were basically, it seems to me like we were hoping that China would go, all right, we're all turning against Putin here. We're going to turn against Putin. But China and India did not. China and India said, uh, nope, we're going to continue buying the royal. We're going to continue to trade, which brings us to, I think, what's the biggest risk is uh, the BRIC system, which is an alternative to SWIFT, is seeming to be... Uh, more formalized in addition to the creation of, uh, it seems like, an alternative currency to the U.S. dollar for uh, India, China, and Russia to trade with each other. The scariest part just being, if you understand kind of our economy, it runs off the fact that people are all using the U.S. dollar. And if there's a, a built-in definitive demand you know, between those countries that you know, like if you're China and you know you got this new currency and you can definitely redeem it for their oil, and then India knows that it can definitely, re you know what I mean? Like, so then you kind of have the built-in redeemability. So I see that long-term as uh, what might be the biggest failure and some risk on our plate. I'm curious if that's come across your radar at all. Actually, this it's so great that you're filling in all these, uh, pulling on the right threads, because actually the way I started figuring this all out was a while ago, um, maybe in just February or March, just saying, you know, what it looks like to me, because they, they must have known that they were going to accelerate the the Eastern alliance there and accelerate their withdrawal from the U.S. dollar and just all of that stuff. And right before that, I started thinking this climate change thing just makes no sense. It's all about fossil fuels. Like, why are they pulling away? These people are heavily invested in energy. Why are they or oil and gas? Why are they pulling us away from fossil fuels? And at that point, I started thinking, is it possible that they feel like like Rockefeller, the original Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, like some people think he took the czar out just to because the czar was going to be a competitor of his on the world stage for total global monopolization of oil? Like, I think that's a reasonable uh, possibility. So when they, uh, so I think it's possible that a hundred years out or more, they realize they're really not going to be able to completely control the world oil market. And because of that, they need to take the oil as the basis of the world economy out. And, and that's why the, we are trying to do like all the green stuff. I'm not saying I really absolutely believe this, but it's just a working hypothesis. And then when, Putin went in there and I could see that it was actually creating, you know, a, a cementing in inevitability, the schism between East and West. I thought, you know what, maybe they realize that they actually cannot fully control the world from Buckingham Palace or, you know, the city of London or wherever. They can't fully control it. So maybe they're saying, you know what, rather than have these upstarts, these efficient upstarts, who have the people, which means that their like financial system could be more robust, and they have so many resources. Like Russia has those natural resources, China has human resources, has factories. Maybe we saw the writing on the wall that like they, we, they, meaning like Western globalists, saw that they weren't really going to be able to win that battle. They 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 gambled on bringing those people up, and it got out of control. So they would rather cut the world in half and have a Cold War situation where they can dominate the Western markets completely, which will be an inefficient market with more expensive stuff, less choice, all of that, um, not as much freedom of movement, but better that than have an open market of competition, East versus West, and and lose there because then you have no power base. And maybe that's why Biden and some of those bigwigs are like, we got to plug into China because that's where the money's going to be. And if we want to dominate the West, we need that like 
pipeline of money. And then as to the petrodollar, so if the petrodollar, you know, maybe they're okay with letting the petrodollar lose steam because uh, they're ready to let go of energy as, as the foundation of the economy. And it will possibly accelerate a crisis here that would do two things. One, it would flood this market with money, which would make inflation go through the roof. And when that happens, you really can't import a lot of stuff because it's just too expensive to use these cheap dollars to buy. So all of a sudden you would kind of close down that import export thing anyway. And if it gets so bad, which I absolutely expect it to in this one area, our debt is ridiculously out of control. We absolutely cannot pay $30 trillion of debt back within the system. And we're not even really going to be able to bear the interest payments if they ever get interest rates back to a kind of normal, which I think they're at least trying to get them to 5%. I could get into why I think that, but I'm not going to. So I, I look at that and say, okay, now they get to have an excuse for a new dollar, the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, which everybody in the world wants to do. Like these ideas of how the West wanted to run the entire world are ideas that Russia and China are definitely glomming onto. But it is possible that we're just like, like some of these factions realize that you're not going to win. So they have to like make their bed up there. And then the way the CBDC thing would go and not sure they would say it's a collapse, turn in all your greenbacks. I saw a blog on the IMF that said the way it would be is they'd start the CBDC and they would make an exchange rate for dollars, for actual paper dollars. And day one, it's one to one. Day 365, it's 90 cents on the dollar. And then it keeps going like that. So people will just gradually do it without having to call it the new dollar. And then other places have gone cashless overnight. But I feel like it's possible that that's what's happening. A new Cold so, War. Uh, so essentially... It's not going to be a new one world order. Instead, what they want to do is actually basically align ourselves with Europe and create like a new, you know, I always thought it would be under an SDR, like uh, that would be the new currency. Uh, but I, I understand now we're kind of in this new crypto game. And so the a central bank digital currency makes sense. Also, wildly scary because that means that they can remove you from your income at any point in time and really unplug you from the system. Uh, without having to show up to your house and put you in jail. So that, it's a really scary reality. Also, negative interest rates become an option because it's not like you can just take your money out of the bank. So all that shit is is really frightening. Um, but in terms of, I guess, the so you're thinking that maybe this was like, it, it, I was standing on the sidelines going, are they so stupid that they pushed Russia and China into each other's hands? And you're thinking maybe it's that they actually want a clean split here but then what happens like North Korea, Vietnam, uh, 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 Taiwan, like all the really good trading partners that we have out um, in the East that are not China? So would we kind of be giving like South Korea? Would that be the end of all those relationships as well? Well, someone just told me that Taiwan is a CIA outpost, the first CIA outpost. Ooh. So I doubt we'll ever lose Taiwan. You know, because um, I got my I got another smart friend who says Taiwan's going down. Like he's oh, convinced. Really? Oh, maybe. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Um, I haven't thought too much through that. I do. I did think that one thing that was happening in some of those countries is that China actually got too too rich, so that their slave labor is like not cheap enough anymore, and they have to tap into places that still have that potential. Like North Korea is an inside job, just maintaining incredibly low standards of living, so that they can still tap into really really low labor rates. Maybe Vietnam's like that too. I saw they had some protests about something like that. So I don't know how it folds in. I don't know how we would access those places. Um, I mean, how did it work in the Cold War? Did we, did, were there like, there was East Berlin, I mean, or West Berlin. Right. There were, there were pockets that were literally walled off. Um, you know, Indonesia, like all, all you need, what difference does it make, right? All you need, I feel like the entire paradigm of world domination from the globalist perspective is that every single solitary person in the most remote place to the most populated place has to be both captive labor and captive consumer. So I don't know if they, you know, they how they would break that up, but I feel like that's what it's all about. All right. So last question on this topic, and then we're going to go, we're going to close it out with uh created persons. Uh, I, I, I get a little bit nervous looking at the food situation. If I had to give a a, a, a a big backup look, 
we'll probably be fine in this country and some other smaller countries are going to have some significant problems. Uh, and I wish, you know, it's like the information's out there. I, I wish I'd worked on wall street. I never worked on wall street in, in college. I interned at one or two hedge funds. I wish I spent more time in that world because if you're, I guess, really like a grain trader, you probably know the numbers. You probably know exactly how much grain's coming from these areas. You can probably forecast what the reduced usage of nitrogen or people not having fertilizer. Right. I'm sure there's people out there that can really do the math. And and it's funny because I can't tell, I call it the Jaws effect, which is when people saw the Jaws movie, they thought that there was more of a risk of being bitten by sharks. So yes. I also wonder with the food situation, if now I'm very in tune, if I see a factory burning or if I see a drought where I'm seeing like cornfields aren't being uh, planted right now, even in the U.S. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm like a little bit more in tune to it. So I don't actually know the facts and figures, but. I can tell you I've been investing in some uh, non-perishable food that I've been loading into my closet, uh, which might be the dumbest thing I've ever done, but I don't own farmable land. And I'm like, I just, I'm a nervous person. I like the idea that it's here. So, I have four crates of dry food right here. I'm touching. I have my hand on them. Really? What, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what brand have you been loaded up from? Well, it was the only one available. Plus I can't eat gluten. It's so, ugh, it's such a problem so i had right. gluten-free dried food legacy premium gourmet dehydrated and freeze-dried food there you go i got buckets of meat <laughs> and buckets of fruit and i don't even know what's in it i'm i'm planning on i want to do a uh run your mouth cookout with a couple of the buckets so that i can pretend like it was all a tax expense and deduct it but oh that's a great idea the, i think these are all ready to eat rte yeah. whatever they call it yeah so no, I, I think you gotta i think you have to actually cook it up a little bit oh yeah it's I believe all dehydrated that, but... yeah it's not like one is meat. It's like one is, right. you know, food package number one, <laughs> like 15 food ones, <laughs> like balanced food one. So, yeah. So I, you know, I think, I think we, uh, give it a second. I think we froze a little bit here. Moi? Really? Well, I can hear you. No, we'll be back. Sometimes okay, it just sorry. lags a little bit. I'm here. Hey, I'm, everybody. I'm in my, I got my good rig now. There you go. Everybody out there, the Run Your Mouth Survival Weekend. I don't know. I'll put it together at some point. You can bring your packaged foods and we can see if we can survive in the wilderness. All right. So okay. I hand it back to you. To what yeah, extent you. do you think uh, we're going to have a food problem next year? Okay. So I what you're saying is 100% right. Like, And I'm always kind of humbled by the fact that I don't know those details. And it's always a challenge for people like us who try to cover the gamut and also communicate broadly. And I always justified it by saying, Hey, I'm a voter. If I can't, if I, if I have this power and I can't figure out what's going on and I'm told to trust, then you should not be doing it as a government. You should have nothing to do with anything. I can't informed in an informed way vote on. So I'm not embarrassed by the fact that I can't get into all that stuff, but I can't, I don't have the time. Nobody does. Um, so what I, uh, and maybe it would be worthwhile to do it, but what I've been looking at is the rhetoric. And when you do like a Google search of, you know, food security, food insecurity, food shortage, any of that, the rhetoric is coming from the very, very top, the world economic forum, the UN, the world bank, um, something called the world food program, which I think is from the UN series, C E R E S 2030, which I think another, like, they look like they're a bunch of different things, but they're all coming from the same place. And I listened to. Uh, a guy, David Beasley, who used to be a senator in the U.S., and now he's head of the World Food Program, which they say World Food Program, and they literally spell it P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E, which just infuriates me because the U.S. basically pays for it entirely, and they make it sound like it's some kind of world thing. They spell it weird, so it looks like it's European. It's just us. And he was absolutely ranting at a CFR thing. I think he said he like, hadn't slept in two days because he'd been traveling around the world, so he was a little casual in how he was talking. Um, and what he was saying was he was, first of all, laying on the fear so thick that I had to I was just like, oh, it's more important. It's more important for him to scare. If this was really coming, he would be dialing it back. Like he'd be like, don't panic yet. Like we need more time to fix this problem. But he's just like scare, scare, scare. So what he said, like the way he said it was going to unfold, he said, well, first, what's going to happen uh, is that we there's going to be a food cost problem. The food prices are going to go through the roof. And yes, if you're American, it's not that big a deal because you'll still you know, get what you want. You might not even notice it because it's not 80% of what you get. But in places where uh, it's a real burden, then you're going to have unrest. And coupling what he said with some of the other stuff I was reading, the idea is, I think this was a Bill Gates quote, like, 
what we need is people in those countries who are running those countries to change the way they think about the future of food, about how they should be investing and planning in their own countries. So I feel like it's a Sri Lanka thing where um, Beasley saying the prices are going to go up. That's going to stimulate unrest. And the unrest, what we're going to use the unrest to do is either pressure governments or affect regime change so that we can implement our plan to change the way food is grown in the world. And I'll tell you about that in one second. And then he said, um, but if that doesn't work, basically, then you're going to have food availability problems. Then you're going to have, then we're going to really fucking start but killing you. I don't believe that though. See, right. I don't personally believe there's going to be food availability problems. It seems like Sri Lanka uh, is a failure of the World Economic Forum that they were like trying to switch over. And then the nitrogen shit makes no sense to me whatsoever. I know. It's I just know. like if you want to combat global warming, which is dumb. And yeah. I know that like I know that you guys are just trying to control economies. I just think you'd get to the nitrogen and food last. And and if there's a you know if there's a food shortage, doesn't that mean that not enough food is being grown? And if not enough food is being grown, doesn't that mean that your nitrous oxide is going down anyway? Or, you know what right. I mean? Like if there's, if there's not enough food for everyone to eat, then you're naturally growing less food, right? That's what they say part of the Ukraine problem is they didn't grow enough food because they were so busy. But yeah, so the, the Sri Lanka thing, that goes hand in hand with something else that they're just like, we decided in 2017 that like the number two sustainability goal was going to be no hunger by 2030. And we've been going in the wrong direction. Now we predict there's only, almost a billion people are going to be hungry in 2030. I'm like, just like... LBJ's poverty stuff is part of the plan to thing that you target to make it worse because all of a sudden that's your bread and butter. You're not going to solve poverty. You're not going to make people feel, um, you know, it's like, it's like the warfare state. You're not going to make people feel physically secure if you get your ta their tax money based on them feeling insecure. So you're not going to give them food security if you're, if the thing that's giving you power is food insecurity. So uh, with the Sri Lanka thing, it, it might have been just a test run of how, like, I read a book by Servando Gonzalez about psychological warfare in the New World Order from decades ago. Well, he was Cuban, and he said this was the, this was an experiment. Cuba was an experiment in deindustrialization. That's why they took the most prosperous country and pulled it back. Maybe, you know, so it's possible that it was just an experiment, small country, whatever. And then they go in there and they're like, okay, we need, um, oh, oh, I think where it, where it broke down was that the president, what just like Yanukovych in Ukraine, was not going to take the IMF deal with all the strings attached. So they pushed him out. And the other guy who was also one of their cronies, um, they put him in and he'll probably, he, I wouldn't even be surprised if he's gone already, but I assume he will just sign that deal and then they'll throw him to the mob. But yeah, I mean, I don't think they care. I think they have to try. That's why there are things like I was telling you about last time, the 2010 Rockefeller Foundation document that lays out four different potential scenarios for the world. Do we have like a world government? Do we have complete breakdown of government? Do we have a lot of information sharing? Do we have total isolation? In any of these scenarios, and they make a grid, how do we get technology into the darkest corners of Africa or the deepest jungles in um, you know, Asia, how do we do it under all these different scenarios? So I think they have to go through a learning process and, um, some of these places may just be experiments, but they're not, they're going to get what they want in Sri Lanka. I think Vicky the noodle, she's going to get what she wants. She always does. <laughs> all right. So just so I don't miss the point, And I do think that it's, uh, it's interesting to look at the way that they, uh, announce these things. Sorry. I, I might've frozen up here first. Oh, you did freeze for me right now. Am I frozen for you? Sorry, I think that no, that was on my end. Uh, okay. But I think we'll be all right. Uh, sometimes just flakes for a second. All right, I just so I don't miss the point on the food stuff. I do think it's fascinating to look at the way that they share information with us because uh, there's there's clues in it. So based off of the level that they're pushing it, like you think if there was a real issue, they would want to kind of secure their own food supplies, kind of like what Fauci did with the mask. And so they wouldn't be making it public information. Uh, I, is that, think, is that yeah. the theory? My, my thinking is that if we Come had on. what I can still hear me. Can you hear me? What do you think? We're freezing on mine. Let me let me just leave the room and come right yeah, back come in, on, come and on then back. hopefully, and then we okay. can do a couple minutes on the creative person. Give me one second here. Sure. Oh wait, I don't want to end the broadcast. I just want to leave it. Um. Yeah. Hi, everybody.
I don't know if you can see me. I think you can still see me. So one thing that I didn't say, uh, Robbie's not going to hear this, but there a big thing that David Beasley said was that one of the other senators said to him on his way out the door to go run the world food program. Now, don't just give those people food, give them cash. And he was like, give them cash. If we give them cash, how will we keep track of it? You know, it'll get, uh, it's just a recipe for corruption. And Beasley was saying, you know, it's amazing because we needed to solve that problem. I don't know why they needed to solve that problem, but we needed to solve that problem. And now we have 80 million, something like that, people on IDs. So we have people who, I guess it's biometric data or whatever, where they're completely plugged into a financial system to get their food stamps. So maybe you wouldn't do that to travel abroad. Maybe you wouldn't do it to get the vax. But the way Beasley set it up, your food is going to be tied to actual cash. And that's why you need the digital ID. So that was a big pro a big factor in um, food scarcity. And I think Iran is doing it where you have to sign up for your digital wallet to get your food stamps. They couldn't do it with the Vax Passport, but they could do it with hunger. Uh, wow. I just came back to a nightmare. <laughs> Me? No. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, was doing, <laughs> no, no, I thought it would be good. a little tidbit for your patient audience. No, no. I love it. Uh, all right. So just uh, we're going to close this out and then we're going to get uh, to creative persons. We'll uh, cover that for about 10 minutes. Um, so specifically on the food thing, you're predicting not going to be a, t uh, a horrible problem. I think it's going to be like the vaccines where they're going to make it seem like a huge problem because they want to not push genetically altered vaccines, but push genetically altered food and what I call um, dependent farming. So you get rid of the heirloom seeds, you get rid of like any natural way to do it. They spray the chemtrails so that the, so you cannot, it's like diabetes. You cannot farm without being plugged into their apps, to their patented seeds, to everything. They're going to use the pandemic of no food to give you the RNA vaccine of dependent farming, but that they may be successful at, and it will be painful to get there. But like COVID, it didn't actually kill 90% of the people. I got you fear fear mongering all right so let's close it out i i i we're, i usually try and dedicate an hour just because uh yeah I like that's to, great oh, i'm totally happy to do that it's also fun because it keeps it moving and add friendly um, Yeah, me too i like 60 minutes yeah <laughs> so let's take uh last uh maybe 10 minutes here just to uh uh close out our conversation about creative persons so you were theorizing that aoc that is a man that is a created person Absolutely. uh we said that Bill Gates likely is, uh, uh, Zuckerberg probably is. Definitely, so yeah. I'll start kick off the topic with this guy. Bono's got to be CIA, right? And the reason I say that, early investor in Facebook, that's how he became like, oh, super wow. wealthy. He's an early Facebook yeah. investor. And then he was like face front forward on that stupid, uh, hey, Fauci's cool documentary. So I look at those two and I'm like, was, even the Fauci thing, I was like, what's this guy's relationship with the deep state? And then you tell me, oh, he's the early Facebook money guy. And I'm like, all right, that makes sense. So did he go to LSE like Mick Jagger? Because Mick Jagger is definitely like not CIA, but right. he's Tavistock Institute. And he went to LSE and so did George Soros. I mean, if they if you really click with some of these extremely visionary world changing professors, I think they identify you. And I do think that, so I would, if I were looking into Bono, which I have not yet, I would look into his early life. Like if his father worked for the government, if his mother's a psychiatrist, or if he went to LSE, some people just get plucked out of, you know, they seek it out. Um, but, but a lot of times, like with almost all the big tech guys, you can find one, like literally one degree of separation, their father, or in the case of Bezos, the grandfather, uh, has a military intelligence or something deep state connection. So I'd look on that for my, some people don't, but even Steve Jobs, the one of the, I think one of the only two, I could not find the connection. I found out that his biological father with whom I believe he had no contact at all was a CIA operative in Syria. Meaning that he probably was raised by his dad secretly. I don't, I don't really think so, but I think they probably kept an eye on him and they knew they could tap into his intelligence or whatever, like, or maybe they chose his adoptive parents. And lack of morality. Or maybe not, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe they just, the guy, maybe, maybe the CIA dad had been secretly following him and said, Hey boss, I think this kid's got it. You know, <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. All right. So who else is high on your creative persons list? Um, well, Stacey Abrams, I mean, just look at her bio. She is just not like the son of a preacher man. She is <laughs> as absolutely plugged in as possible. Her sister's a federal judge. Her other sister worked for the CDC. 
Um, her parents both have graduate degrees in preaching, I think. So she she should be better at it than she is. But her deep state internships are crazy. AOC is a big one. Um, I do think James Comey is Zuckerberg, Sergey Brin, uh, Lady Gaga. I think because she went to that talented, she's a cha cultural change agent who has a little bit of a, you know, I was really down when nobody knew I existed. And um, it took me a really long time to make it kind of story. But she was in middle school. She was in this like, you are one of the smartest people in the country program. So smart that we're going to study you. Johns Hopkins, like, you know, the deep state medical center. And then like, obviously, we were talking about George Soros last time. So his thing was he supposedly, uh, James Comey was also something we talked about last time. So he had mentioned that when he was 14, I believe the story was that he went with uh, Nazis to confiscate property. If I, if I, I should have boned up on that, but he said something like that. And he also said it was the happiest time of his life. Like he likes being someone. And then he went to LSE where he studied under Popper, who had the exact like tribalism thing that we're seeing. And he said that he wanted to get rich in order to implement Popper's ideas. And I think similarly, Bill Gates was made to be rich in order to implement his father's ideas. Uh, in Bill Gates' case, the population control stuff. In George Soros, it's about um, eradicating culture and ethnicity and all of that so that you could have a more modular, highly controlled, highly materialistic, consumeristic society. Like if you look at China, like I live in a really highly Chinese neighborhood of just like um, post Mao Chinese immigrants who don't even speak English, we're incredibly wealthy. I rent a house and um, the materialism, it's a beautiful neighborhood. They're really good neighbors for sure. But the materialism is almost embarrassing. I mean, purple Lam Lamborghinis and stuff sometimes, not, not in this exact neighborhood, but you see that a lot. And I always wondered like Marx's shtick was dialectical materialism, which I, I haven't cracked the code on, but I'm like materialism, definitely. So even if they think they're being Marxist and maybe Marx's plan was that poor, the poor should be rich, I don't know. But there's definitely a materialistic element to it. And uh, and I think because George Soros got rich by front running the British pound, that's something that, that he could easily have been tipped off at, at easily. So I feel like he must be a created person. There's no question about it. And, you know, other people... Uh, I mean, every, almost every big tech guy, I think I'm trying to crack the code on Elon Musk. People do say that you can, you can trace it back. South Africa is definitely a hotbed for, um, English speaking intelligence. Well, Musk is, uh, an interesting one to me, uh, cause, uh, well, I'll give the two sides of it. The one side from a free market perspective, that guy's entire business seems to be built off of, you know, government credits, like that's the profit model. So it's not like he's stepped into the market, competed, and he's also particularly good at making his own headlines and like trading. I don't know necessarily trading off of what he's doing, but like, it just seems like he's playing a different stock game and that he's very good at kind of playing the, oh, the genius guy's doing this. And then like the market reacting to it. Uh, I, I, to, to give credit to the to some of these guys, though, is I do think to be forward looking for the survival of humanity, getting to some other pan planets and populating them is probably a winning strategy. And it's interesting to me that uh, the private market seems to be moving forward on that dream more than like centralized government with NASA. Uh, but Elon Musk does not seem like uh, just a free market engineer to me. Well, the the tell to me is exactly what you're saying. So you look at Mark Zuckerberg, you look at basically all of these guys, really young guys who at a very young age, as the British would say, stepped in a pile of shit, which is a good thing, like either um, made this brilliant investment, a really sizable, meaningful investment that that made them billionaires when it paid off before they had billions to risk or they created something like unbelievably world changing like Facebook or PayPal or whatever. And then, so they were the guy in the garage. They were the high school dropout. They had that personality. Then they're the guy who builds it up. Then they're the guy who manages a huge company. Then they're the guy who manages basically the dominant or sole player in that niche. Then they're the guy who goes to Congress and, and, smooth feathers. Then they're the guy who uh, put the memes out there to change the way people think. Then they're the philosopher guy. Then they're the philanthropy guy. Every one of those guys are all of those things. And in my experience, no one is ever more than one of those things. No one is ever more than the best uh, drop everything entrepreneur or the best 
Congress mouthpiece. Like a CEO of a company is rarely a guy who started his career uh, making widgets in the in the basement. Like there are entrepreneurs, there are managers, there are face jobs, there are outward facing people. That's why you have like a structure like that in a corporation. So the fact that he's that guy makes me think that he was put in place, just like Zuckerberg memorized stuff, put in place to be a, a messenger, to send messages out. But he had to have, I think they call it ethos or pathos, whatever, like he needs credibility. And that's why they build up those stories and they make you relatable. They they use vulgarity. They tweet. Would you really tweet if you had a hundred billion dollars? Just fucking tweet. Every minute I'd be screwing whores and eating caviar or whatever, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that's all I would do. I guess we'd spend our billion the same way, except I'm not going <laughs> into caviar, but <laughs> it's a great line. <laughs> Why tweet? There you go. All right. Anything else on uh, the creative person's topic? Because we, 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 we had covered it for about a half hour and got cut off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did yeah that to, was uh, most of it. Okay. So uh, for those interested in more deep dives, that is the name of your show, Deep Dives with Monica Perez. You can follow on Twitter, Monica Perez Show. Anything else to plug? Uh, yeah, no, just uh, tweet at me and listen to the show. Give me a review or a star. I'm trying to build up that RSS feed. And I will say to you, next time we talk, ask me what is a sacrificial wolf. Ooh, I'm into it. And I really uh, think it, it's great that you're the one person in the space actually doing your homework. And like, I read headlines and kind of get bigger themes, but it's nice that you got the actual information you've dug in. So I do really appreciate the insights. Thank you very much. Excellent. All right. Have a good one, everybody. Summer Porch Tour, RobbieTheFire.Eventbrite.com. That is our episode. Have a good one. Thank you.